Good morning. All right. Well, we're going to continue in our series on the book of Ephesians this morning. And this book was written uh, by Paul, but through the hands of God to his church, to his people, um, to a city, to a region. Uh, in many ways, we talked about it's very similar to, to where we live here in Los Angeles. And God has been saying in this book so far, as we've been looking at it, is um, this is how I called you. This is how I made you. You are my people. Um, consider those things, how I've interacted with you, and out of that reality, out of that understanding, then live your life. And so today we come to chapter 5, and what we see in chapter 5 is this call um, to really imitate God, to follow his example, and we have this list of what it practically looks like. Basically, um, what, are the, what is the fruit of living in the reality of actually being rooted in Christ. And so I want to jump in. I want to read our passage this morning. We're going to look at the first few verses of chapter one, uh, 5, uh, and then we'll, we'll talk some more of that. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 starts like this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Verse 4, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For many of you be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let me pray for us as we jump into this passage. Our Father, we thank you that uh, you love us. We, Father, thank you that you sent your Son. Father, we thank you that uh, you sent your Spirit to guide us and to teach us. Father, I pray that you would do that this morning, that you would open up the depths of who you are to our hearts, that we would be people that are changed. Father, I pray that your Spirit would rest upon me as I share from your Word this morning, and that you would teach us and that you would guide us and that you would call us closer and deeper into a greater love for you. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there's a lot in this passage that we could talk about. Um, there's probably a sermon for each verse or even each part of the verse. And honestly, as I was like thinking about it this week and as I was preparing, um, I was struggling like where to focus our time because there's so many things on in, in, this, in, these, in these 14 verses. And I was, I was praying and I was processing. I think the best use of our time would actually to be focused on the love of God that he has for us. And that we would focus on that, and that would call us to live out a life that we would know the life to imitate. 
So I see I sense this. The idea really is that if we're truly gripped by being loved by God, and if we truly understood it, all the other things that he lists here in this passage about how to live would really would just fall into place. We'd have no desire to live out idolatry and worship those other things, what they would provide for us. We would just really basically see them as just a, just a meager drop of water compared to the entire ocean. And so I want to spend our time really spinning out God's love for us, um, God's love for his people, for his family, for his church. And I want to kind of ask this question to consider this morning. Um, and this question is this, do you love God? Do you love him? Do you love God? I know nobody perfectly loves God. That's not the question. The question is not about perfection. The question is really, is God your treasure? Is God your treasure? Do you love God? In Luke chapter 12, 34, Jesus says this, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That is, there will be your love. What Jesus is saying is he's, he's trying to persuade us to have our treasure in heaven and not on earth. He's calling us to treasure God above all other things. Because the reality is, is what you count as your treasure, what your heart embraces, is actually what you love. And so when I ask this question, do you love God? Is he your treasure, is really what I'm asking. Is God the most valuable reality in your life? It's not the idea of just, have you ever heard an invitation to call and you repented and you believed and you love what God has done for you, that he saved you. But do you truly love him? Do you treasure him above all other things in life? I think this is one of the most critical questions to ask for any, any Christian. Because the answer to this question will affect every aspect of your life. Every aspect of your life. Your work, your play, your relationships, the way you view the world, the way you view sex, the way, the way you talk, the things that you desire, the way you use your resources. Whatever you want to add to whatever X, the A to Z of life will look different based on that one question, do you love God? Do you treasure him above everything else? So as we think about this idea of what it really means to be the church in this city and to demonstrate God's love to people and to care for them and to, and to serve them and to point them to Jesus, um, it's going to require us being rooted more deeply in God's love. Being in love by, with Jesus being loved by Jesus is really the grounds of becoming loving. In other words, a loving person means that you are, are living with the roots of your life sunk deep down in the love of God for you. 1 John 4.16 says it this way, We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. What this verse is saying is that the love um, that God has for us is really key for me growing into a loving person. And I think the more we see that, the more we understand that, the more that becomes a reality in our life, the more that will actually play into how we image him in this world. I think one of the other problems as we, as we think about this is that I don't think we understand the word love. 
I don't think it's a word that we completely understand. The word love, I would say, is probably overused and misused in our culture more than maybe any other word. We've, we've kind of lost the true meaning of the word love when we actually think about it and we try to apply it to God. When I ask this question, do you love God, I think we can actually miss what God's love is for us. We use this word love for everything, right? Like, I mean, like, I really love pizza. Some of you say, I love that movie. It was the best movie this year. Jocelyn will tell you, she loves horses, right? Like, I love cars. I love my mom. I love my wife. I love the eagles. I love this day. I love this city. Oh, man, you know what? I really love donuts. I had one this morning. You should go over there and get one, right? Like, all these things we say and we throw love in, but somehow they don't add up to the same, but we throw this word in there to show that there's some, some capacity that these things are important to us. And I, I think it's no wonder that our, that our culture misunderstands, and I would say the church really misunderstands, what love really is. I think oftentimes people think about, about love, and they think it's just something that, that just happens to us. We fall in love. I was walking by this one day and I came around the corner and we looked at one another and then we just like fell into some hole, right? We just stepped off a cliff and we fell head first and now we, we fell into love. That's why they say we fell head over heels, right? Or maybe this idea that like, well, I was in that hole of love, but then I fell out of that. Like, how does that even work? How do you fall out of a hole, right? Like, the, the reality is you actually decided to step on the other person to get out of the hole. Um, but when we think about it, right, we think we just have no control over love. We think, oh, you know, love, you never know when that's going to happen to you. You're just going to be walking down the road and it's going to like bite you like a snake. Like it just jumps out and attacks us and then we fall into love. But that's not exactly what the Bible says. The Bible has a very different definition of love. It actually teaches that love doesn't just happen by chance. Love is actually an action. It's actually a decision. It's something that we're commanded to do and commanded to have and commanded to live in. Our passage in John says this. It says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we're called into the action of love the way that God loved us. I think it's why it's so important this morning that we focus our hearts on the depths of Christ's love for us if we're going to understand better our calling on how to live that out in the city. You see, God wasn't just walking around heaven one day and he, he noticed us and says, oh, aren't those humans like really cute? And he like fell off and fell into love. No, like God actually had an action. He made a decision to love us. If we go back to Ephesians chapter 5, um, in verse 1 and 2, we really get to see what it means that God loved us. I want to read those verses again for you. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Notice here in verse 2 that the giving of himself was the demonstration of love. Christ loved you and he gave himself up for us as an offering and as a sacrifice to God. 
If you look earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, it will say that we are all by, by nature um, children of wrath. That we are all people that, that deserve to perish, that, that deserve to be punished in hell for our sins, our thoughts, our imaginations, our attitudes, our tongues, the way we talk, the things that we do with our hands, the things that we do with our entire bodies. But the covenant love of God moved for us, not only to choose us, but to give us his son as a sacrifice in our place. Christ gave himself up for us. He became a curse for us so that we would not have to perish. You see, to feel the full depth of this, please know that this was not just some like general love. This is a very specific love. God, it's just not just this big like happy feeling. It's a very specific love. A little further on in chapter 5, it'll, it'll call us to say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, Christ giving himself to die as a substitute for the church was part of a covenant love that he had for his bride. In love, he chose you and me to be his bride. In love, he laid down his life for you and for me. For you, individually and particularly, you are in view as the goal of his loving and of his dying. I want to try, try to like wrap your brains around this. We could talk about this all day, but really, that on the cross, Jesus had every name of one of his children on his mind. That Jesus had the image of every person's face as he was on the cross. That, that your name, that my name, that all of his children, that every member of the entire church in the world, as he was on the cross, he looked at them and he looked at their faces and he looked at their names and that he did it and he gave his life in love as he was on the cross so that he could make each one of them part of his bride. He was thinking about you and me specifically as he willingly walked into the pain and the suffering on the cross. You see, the cost of his love was himself, his life. It wasn't just some, some money or some time or some energy or some inconvenience or even suffering. That wasn't the full extent of his sacrifice. Jesus gave himself. Jesus loved you and he gave himself for you. We talked about this earlier in Ephesians chapter 1 where it says God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse 5 says that in love he predestined us as adopted sons and daughters of the king. You see, God loved you before you were born and that moved him to call you to be his child. See, God's love is not some, some just general love that God is love out there. God's love is, is very specific. It's fixed personally and particularly on individuals. And he chose you and pursued you and brought you to himself because he desires to have you in his family. And Jesus did that for you. Jesus knew who he was dying for as he went to the cross. He knew who was unworthy. But he did it anyway because he had a very specific, special love 
for you and for me that is far above any human love that we can understand or think about. Notice here in verse 2 where it says that Christ also loved you and gave himself as an offering and as a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But really this idea that when God the Father looked over um, at the love that his son had poured out on the cross, it was a fragrant aroma to him. When Paul calls this death of Christ a fragrant aroma to God, what he means by that was that, that God was satisfied with what Christ had done. He didn't look down and say, you know, you can't do that. You can't die for other people. Every person has to bear their own guilt. Don't be foolish to think you can take the curse of their condemnation. On the contrary, God the Father looked out, and I think really with, with tears in his eyes, not, not in sorrow, but tears of joy like, like at a wedding, probably tears that are going on right now at Hannah's wedding, where this tremendous pleasure took place in Jesus' love. And the good news is that Jesus did not die in vain. God received his death as an offering, and it satisfied the Father's justice. It removed God's wrath and his judgment, and God was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. That now the good news is that your debt and my debt is paid. And to love you and to me, it cost Jesus his life. I want to say Jesus' life was a very valuable life. It wasn't like, you know, Jesus was just kind of getting old in his life and most of his life was kind of over. And he said, you know what, I'm going to die soon anyway. I might as well just like go ahead and die for them because I've pretty much accomplished everything I'm going to do already, humanly speaking. Jesus still had a lot of things to do. Not only that, Jesus was very young. Jesus was sinless and Jesus was perfect. He was the most worthy of actually living. 1 Peter 2.22 says this, He committed no sin with any deceit found in his mouth. It's this idea that even Jesus' enemies, the people that were against him, could not find any fault in him. So the life that he gave up for us was no ordinary human life. Every human life has value, which that would be, that would be great enough that he just kind of gave that up. But this was a sinless life, a life that was perfectly balanced in joy and in sorrow, in tenderness and toughness, in justice and in mercy, in grief and in anger, in speech, and in silence, in prayer, and in actions, Jesus' life was perfect in all areas. Of all the other lives that have ever lived on this earth, in this planet, Jesus' life was the most valuable. Jesus was the Son of God, and was of infinite value. Of infinite value. You see, the only reasons why humans actually have value is because, to a degree... We reflect the image of God. And if that's actually true, how much more valuable is the actual original image that we're reflecting? It's this idea, it's kind of like the Mona Lisa, right? The Mona Lisa is way more valuable than some picture that you take of it while you're in the museum. Right? Jesus, please know this, Jesus was the most worthy of continuing to live. He is the least worthy of dying. But that's the life that he gave for you and for me so that we might now live. 
On top of that, please understand what this sacrifice actually involved. To get to the point where Jesus could die, Jesus had to actually plan for it. He left the glory of heaven and took on human nature so that he could get hungry, so that he could get weary, and in the end, suffer and die. In many ways, the incarnation, that's a big word for God becoming man, was the preparation of the nerve endings for the nails on the cross. It was the building of a, of a broad human back so that it could be scourged and whipped. It was the growing of a forehead and a skull for a place for the thorns to be pressed into. Jesus needed cheeks for Judas to kiss and the soldiers to spit on. He needed hands and feet for spikes to be driven into. He needed a side for a place for the sword to pierce it. He needed a brain and a spinal cord with all of its nerve endings so that he could feel the entire excruciating death for you and for me. Jesus' death was the worst of all kinds of torture. And so Ephesians says in verse 2, Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Please don't just breeze over those words. His love cost a lot, a great proportion of the costliness in his sacrifice. His sacrifice was horrendous, and the good news is that he actually did it willingly and purposefully for you, not because you deserved it, but because he loved you. See, the reality is that the, you only know the depths of someone love, they love you, by understanding how little you actually deserve of that love. I think about this with my wife. My wife, if, if I've always treated her well, and I've always done everything that she expected, and everything that she's ever asked, and provided everything that she's ever wanted, and she loves me, then that's okay. But if, what if I've never done anything she expected? Or actually never treated her well along the way? but she still loves me? That's a different kind of love. If we had treated God well all our life and we'd done all that he expected and when he loves us, it doesn't prove that much. But when we've offended him and when we've shunned him and when we've disdained him and he still loves us, that's amazing love. You see, the more we understand how undeserving we are, the more amazing and how deep his love for us actually becomes a reality in our hearts. There's a direct connection between how well we see Jesus' love and how well we understand how undeserving we are of it. How undeserving we are as the objects of his love. See, the good news of this amazing love is that, that his love does not just make you neutral. It's not that God loved you and forgave you and, and, and cleaned your slate and so now you're back to like square one. So you can go on life without, without debt. God didn't just pay off your house or your credit cards or your car, whatever it is. No, it's far greater than that. In Ephesians 5, it says, Therefore, be imitators as God, as beloved children. What this is saying is that when God united you with Christ, you became a child of God, an heir. You've moved into the mansion. You're not just back on square one where, where you're, you're, you're flush now. You're in the home of God as his child. 
And please understand, this is what God has been aiming at all the time. It wasn't just to save you. It was to change your status so that you could become full members of the house of God. That's why Ephesians 1.5 it said that God predestined us into adoption. It's why the church is called the bride of Christ. We have a new family, a new dad. You see, sometimes as you think about in life, like some parents have children accidentally. And if they're cruel or heartless parents, they might even tell their children they never wanted them in the first place. Maybe some of your parents have said that to you. I want to tell you, God has no unwanted children. They are all planned from eternity past with great expectation and great joy. And they're all pursued. Christ's death is really like this unspeakable highest payment through like heaven's adoption process. He paid into the heaven's adoption fund to get you and me. You and I are loved as not just some random, some general, some impersonable way, but as children of God that he sought after and adopted with a great cost. This is the love of Jesus that God is calling you to imitate, that God is calling you into. To not just to stand back and to admire and say, oh, you know what, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just a beautiful ocean out there? But no, to actually to run into it and to jump in and play and to enjoy the waves and to call others to come in and, and jump in and play with you and to see and experience the depths of God's love. To daily walk in it and to experience it and to love others and to forgive others out of that great wealth and love and forgiveness that you and I have been given. To cherish it. To treasure Him. That's the love that God has for you and that's the love that God is calling you and I to imitate. It's why Paul prays earlier in this book that we would know the depths of God's love. He prays those things and he talks about those things before he outlines what practically it will look like in our lives. He calls us to, to live a life that's a reflection of, of that love, not a life of our old self. You see, if you look at verse 4, the main way that that life looks is really a life of gratitude and a life of thanksgiving. You see, a life of gratitude and a life of thanksgiving is really an alternative life. It's different than the things listed out here in Ephesians 5. This list of things in, in Ephesians 5 is, are things that, that, are, that are defined by, by, by craving things that you don't have. Whether that's money or that's sex or coveting things you don't have. This is a list of, of what it of looks like when you're ungrateful or when you're unthankful. On the flip side, in the heart that says, that I'm thankful for what God has, and I'm thankful for all that God has given me, then I won't be driven to dishonor the worth of his name by how I talk and how I, how I go after a few sexual sensations or how I, I go and look for these new toys. When we're truly grateful for something, you don't despise it and you don't trivialize. Trivialize, that's not the right word. There you go. I knew someone would get it. If you're overflowing with thanksgiving to God, you're not dominated or driven by discontentment by what you don't have or what you think 
you've been denied. When your heart is overflowing with gratitude to God, you don't use filthy language or make light of things. That's what Paul is saying here. A life of gratitude is is that when you, you feel what you've been given and you understand what you've been given and you have the eyes to see that all you have in life is the work of God's sovereign, gracious love towards you, that when you feel that, when you believe that, when you understand that God is for you and not against you, that your life's going to look different. That when you actually feel and when you believe that, that what he gives you is it's not only good for you, that he doesn't withhold anything from you, that there's no good thing that you don't have, regardless of, of what is going on in your life, regardless of your marital status or your work status or your living situation status or the things that you want or whatever other status there may be. Gratitude is what you feel when you actually trust God. You actually trust his love for you. It's a proper perspective into the tragedies and the goods and the bads in every moment of life. I hope you're starting to get this because we could probably talk about this more and more and more. But the most important thing I want you to see today is that even in the most physical, ordinary struggles of life, the central issue is God. It always is. Do you love and do you, do you truly treasure God? See, Paul calls some of these things the dominion of our craving idolatry. In, in many ways, he's saying this effect, that in effect, God should be everything for you. God should be your pleasure, your satisfaction, your hope, your joy, your master. All of your life should be governed by an by a overflowing gratitude for him and towards him for his goodness and his glory and his grace and his power and his wisdom and his love in your life. And unless we get this, unless we truly understand this, there's no way that we'll actually love anyone else and there's no way that we'll actually love the city around us. It's impossible because you'll do it for a few minutes and then you'll be tired of it or you'll fall out of love. You'll climb on someone else to get out of there. And you'll look back at yourself and it'll always be about you. I started with this question for us to consider. Do you love God? Do you love God in this manner that I've been talking about this morning? The way that he loved you? Do you treasure him? Do you live in that love? There's a call for us to actually take action, to actually confess, and to actually walk in a new way, is what these verses are saying. He's saying, walk and live in that love. I know usually on Celebration Sunday, we kind of start the gathering after a song or so with, with celebrations of God's grace. We talk about the evidences of God's love in your life. Part of the reason that we do that each month is that that we would start to teach each other to be grateful people. That we would start to begin to see into everything in life how that God is the most valuable one and how he still loves us and cares for us no matter what is going on in our life. That's why we don't just share the good things in our lives. We share things that are hard as well during this time. And we pray for one another and we encourage one another. And we talk about the love of God that he has for us. 
So I want to just stop talking for a little bit, and I want to open up the floor like we usually do, but we're doing it now, and I want you to think about expressing the way that God has loved you. Let's tell each other how loving God is towards us. Let's share some evidence of God's grace. Let's share some some gratitude, some thankfulness for who God is. Who wants to share? Jocelyn. He invented horses. Yeah. God made things that we get to enjoy. That's God's grace. That he actually invents things that we enjoy, and then he made things for our enjoyment. God loves his kids to be happy and to have have peace and joy. Yeah, good. What else? 